is Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Yeah, doing very well. Um, mainly this week I have been having a lot of fun talking about, well, and, and reading people talking about the release picture of the Joker from Suicide Squad. Mm, people people very uptight about it, aren't they? Yeah, people are... Uh, it's it's very... It's not exactly evenly split. It's very sharply split. split. I think the majority of people have been making fun of it and saying it looks like he's someone from Good Charlotte or Papa Roach <laughs> or something, some an early 2000s band that would play at Lollapalooza on the Warp Tour. And people are like saying, oh, you can't judge it. And it's like, well, you, you're right, we can't judge the character, but we can say that he looks fucking dumb. Mm. Where do you, is that where you fall? Do you think it looks, it looks dumb? Uh, I think it looks, it looks overly busy. And like mm. the the exact the, the way I described it on Twitter was, it looks like the result of a brainstorming session in which no ideas were rejected, <laughs> uh, and it really does seem like any one of the things they chose, except for the damaged tattoo, which is really really uh, terrible, <laughs> and just like it's a, bit, really... a bit on the nose, isn't it? Yeah, I mean the the Joker is not a subtle character. You don't really need to uh, you don't need to kind of uh, lampshade it anymore. But yeah, the uh, the the that is the, the dumbest thing. But if you would just have him having fucked up teeth and maybe one or two tattoos, it'd be fine. But having all of it is all kind of a bit busy and a bit too much. Mm. Um, I couldn't stop laughing at the person who'd photoshopped it because the pose is what I have the issue with. It seems really stupid, like he's on a like a busted poster or something. <laughs> but like um, uh, someone had photoshopped his picture of him kind of holding his hair into the Home Alone video cover. Yeah, I've seen that uh, a lot. Which is pretty good. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, it's, it's weird to see people reacting negatively to it. And that's one thing you kind of expect that, but it's weird to see so many people defending it. And they're kind of like, oh no, there are hidden messages in, in, in those tattoos. And someone was kind of positing the theory that each kind of item down to the one glove and each toe was kind of rep- some way representative of every uh, kind of person who's played the Joker because it, the picture was uh, the picture was released on the Joker's 75th anniversary. I'm just like, fucking hell, internet. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, I, I also like the fact that a lot of people have basically went to the same place that I did with it, which is as soon as the picture came out thinking, I can't really imagine him going into a tattoo parlour and just kind of sitting and asking for all those tattoos to be done. Um, mm. I think, like, I, you know, I'm not a stickler for logic in films. I think it's fine for things not to make sense or for some things to be kind of silly, but that all those tattoos look a bit too neat to me, and I think if you want to suggest the Joker is completely insane, the idea of him going in and getting something very deliberately designed like that done kind of defeats that, and it probably would have been better if he did have lots of tattoos, but they're all, like, backwards because he's tried to do them themselves and they're all really fucked up. Mm. Yeah, the damage was spelt wrong or something. Yeah, some, yeah, something a little more kind of interesting than just looking like someone from 2004 has been asked to describe what would be edgy. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I, I liked kind of Paul Shear did a tweet about it and said uh, he's pleased to live in a world where people are more accepting of 
um, Bruce Jenner and his news uh, over the Jared Leto photo, <laughs> which is, you know, I don't know, a pretty decent summation of it. Uh, I kind of, uh, as as kind of uh, regular listeners will know, I'm kind of uh, one of the programmers of a, of a cult film night called uh, The Five and Dime Picture Show. Um, and uh, on this Friday, we showed uh, one of my kind of favourite films of recent memory, uh, Pitch Perfect, a film which uh, you're very keen on as well, Ed. Um, mm-hmm. And it got me thinking, uh, watching it and being kind of entranced by it, and also listening to a recent WTF episode, but is Anna Kendrick possibly the kind of most charming, nice person working in Hollywood at the moment? She certainly seems to be it. So she's either genuinely the nicest, most charming person, or she's a very good liar. Mm. Um, and either way, uh, she's I've got a lot of uh, kind of very fun performances out of her. So I don't think it matters that much. No. And do you think that like every every role she seems to be doing now is a, is a musical role? And I know this is something that seems silly to say about someone who won a, won a Tony Award when she was like eight or something stupid. Um, but is she being kind of pigeonholed here? Probably. I mean, it certainly seems... Or maybe it's just a case of her kind of playing to her strengths. And if someone offers you the chance to be in Into the Woods, even if it's a kind of not very good and misguided adaptation, uh, I don't think some anyone who has the kind of the chops that she has would say no or who has kind of experience of being on Broadway, the chance to be in a Sondheim musical is, uh, you know, not uh, something that people would pass up. Mm. And I suppose that she can kind of mix it up by kind of, well, I'll do a big musical, but then I'll just do a Joe Swanberg movie next. Yeah, and also musical. There, musicals tend, are quite rare. And there are not a huge amount get made. And I guess if you're the one person who's identified as something of a musical star people will probably send you a lot of the scripts and or they'll ask you to star in these various adaptations thinking, well, we might actually get this made if we have someone who people think of as a musical actor. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, also seen a lot of um, Star Wars Rebels this week, kind of going off the back of our uh, kind of excitement from Star Wars celebration uh, in last week. Um, have you seen much of Rebels? Um, the case kind of more aimed towards kids but it's a lot of fun uh no i haven't seen one the last star wars tv thing i saw was years ago which was the uh jendy tartakovsky clone wars cartoons uh which were really really good because jendy tartakovsky is the guy behind like samurai jack so they're very stylized and pretty much just lightsaber battles for 10 minutes at a time which Mm. is a lot of fun and they're better than the the CG Clone Wars uh, TV show, which was incredibly boring. Yeah, I didn't I didn't bother with that one. I remember when the uh, film came out and it just got savaged, even by Star Wars standards to the extent. Yeah. But but also was completely forgotten about because I don't think people really remember that that actually came out in cinemas. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's it beggars belief. Um, but no, uh, Star Wars Rebels is uh, is a lot of fun. It's got kind of a a bit more light hearted. Um, kind of uh, tone to it um, but also kind of has come some slightly new kind of takes on uh, characters kind of a character who realises they've got the force but doesn't really know how to control it um, and uh, kind of in a very interesting way kind of I believe a metaphor for puberty but you know I don't want to get too deep into Star Wars Rebels um, but no it's uh, it's worth checking out and I think they're bringing out another season very soon. Anyway, enough waffle on what we've been talking and what we've been doing this week. 
Um, what are we talking about tonight, Ed, as our, as our subject? Our subject this week is unmade films. Wow, okay. Uh, so we're going to be talking about um, films that uh, either got made but had kind of an original kind of genesis with another director or, you know, kind of, there is a kind of like a could have been or we're going to talk about films that are kind of maybe perhaps too ridiculous and too expensive to have been made and everything in between. Um, but I think the kind of the starting point of this is we've kind of both recently seen, or I've definitely recently seen uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, which is a documentary about uh, um, kind of certifiable madman Alejandro uh, Jodorowsky's attempts uh, to adapt, adapt Frank Herbert's Dune uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and the documentary is absolutely fantastic. I'd recommend everyone watch it um, just to see what could have been, well, probably definitely would have been the weirdest film ever made. Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, I really liked about it is it's a film that is kind of in awe of the prospect of mm-hmm. of uh, Hodorowsky's Doom, but also kind of doesn't shy away from the fact that it probably would have been an ungodly mess. Mm, like, oh, absolutely. The, he assembled an amazing cast of talent. He got Salvador Dali in it. He got Orson Welles was going to be in it. Pink Floyd were going to do some of the music. They got Mobius in to do some of the designs. H.R. Giger did some design work for it. It had an amazing uh, assemblage of talent, but when you hear him talk about his final vision for it, he says, oh yeah, it would have been like eight hours long or something. And you, just, and you hear it, you think, yeah, this probably would have been an utter disaster, but it, it probably would have been really fascinating if it had actually got to the state, if if you know money hadn't stopped it from being made. Mm. Money and like kind of, like no studio ever would have backed, you know, back to that because it was just sheer lunacy from start to finish when you, your key actors are like you say also well Salvador Dali and Mick Jagger um, it's it's something that like is going to take some serious balls to get behind especially with the amount of kind of money that would have needed yeah and especially coming in a pre-Star Wars era where big budget sci-fi wasn't something people were that interesting in getting into it was lots of you know, you're you're more likely to see something up on the silent running end of things, something that was mm. reasonably idea driven and uh, fairly cheapish to make, <laughs> rather than something that is you know a huge, vast uh, effects driven thing that would really push the boundaries of what you could do with the technology at the time. Mm. Is it the film's interesting um, because it kind of shows that Jodorowsky and He's kind of like uh, producers and everything created a huge hardback book, and kind of sent which had all the concept art, the script, basically storyboards, everything they needed. All these kind of crazy designs by Giger and Me- Mobius. Um, uh, they sent them to all the studios, and you know there's still copies of it knocking around now. What was interesting is just how influential so many of those things were. I mean, some of the people who worked on it, like H.R. Uh, uh, Geiger and uh, uh, Dan O'Banion. Um, Ended up working together on Alien, famously. A lot of the kind of crossover uh, kind of came into Star Wars and bits and bobs. Um, so it was a hugely influential film that didn't actually ever, you know, didn't even roll the cameras. Yeah, it kind of becomes a perfect metaphor for itself because the film, as intended, as as uh, Ge- as uh, Jodorowsky imagined, it would have ended with. Uh, I believe the planet of June becoming sort of sentient and traveling throughout the universe and kind of spreading its message throughout all of the all of the galaxies and when you think about it that's kind of what the film did like the film 
died and didn't really get made, but from it sprang this huge well of creativity and all of these different connections that then led to, you know, dozens and dozens of great films, which in turn inspired, you know, whole generations of science fiction creators and fans. Mm. But then the film did also get made um, much later by uh, David Lynch and um, was really bad. Yes, so and that's kind of the, the part of it that uh, made me laugh the most is when Jodorowsky's talking about it and he's saying how he was really depressed when he found out David Lynch was going to make it because he was like, oh, this is a great artist, he's going to do make a great film and then he watched it and it was total crap. Mm. And he was like, oh, thank God that even he couldn't make it into a half-decent film. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure that it would have been kind of borderline unwatchable, mm-hmm. uh, the, the version that Jodorowsky made, which makes it also better than the the, the David Lynch version. Yeah, if, if as long as it was crazier. Mm. And the David Lynch uh, thing about him directing Dune kind of brings us to another kind of unmade project, or it could have been that David Lynch around that time uh, was George Lucas's first choice for Return of the Jedi, uh, the cuddly, cuddliest, uh, uh, most kind of kid and kind of kid-orientated um, entry into the original Star Wars version was going to be directed by the director of Eraserhead. Yeah, I think that's one of those fascinating um, could-have-beens, but at the same time, you you kind of wonder how much of he would have been able to put his stamp on it, because by all accounts, Lucas really kind of imposed his will on the third film in a way that he hadn't on Empire, because he was kind of hands-off and seemed to get annoyed at people for doing things to make the film better. Um, mm. And I think that even someone with as strong a vision as as Lynch probably would have uh, not not been able to really uh, assert himself. But the uh, the story of him turning the the job down is really funny because he, he just talks about going for a meeting with Lucas, who then just starts talking to him about Wookies, and like as he keeps saying the words over and over. And David Lynch describes himself as just developing a massive headache and having a panic attack. Because he's just like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Which is quite something coming from the guy who created Eraserhead. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I think in terms of films that were kind of grand uh, in terms of ambition and were never realised by probably the only person who could realise them, um, the kind of daddy of these is is kind of Kubrick's Napoleon, isn't it? Yeah, that's certainly one of the ones, certainly in terms of the amount of time he and effort he invested into it. You know, Kubrick was someone who spent years and years researching and working on these various projects, and he had this grand vision of a true kind of historical epic all about Napoleon's life, which, again, like Jarowski's Dune, ended up kind of being uh, scuppered by money, essentially, and also because the Waterloo tanked, and they said people won't want to see a film set in this time period, so maybe you should make something else. Uh, mm. uh, but he still ended up making Barry Lyndon. So he just kind of said, well, maybe they won't like it about Napoleon. Maybe they'll like it about some boring Englishman. Mm. Called Barry. <laughs> I thought it was like the worst name of a film ever. Barry. Who wants to see a film about Barry? I don't. Yeah, the, the, it, was a, it was a poor choice. Well, actually, I mean, I don't, I don't dislike Barry Lyndon. It's not my favourite Kubrick, but I think that's another case of where the existence of Barry Lyndon kind of makes the absence of Napoleon all the more keenly felt 
because mm. you can clearly see so much effort and research went into the and it was being went into Napoleon that he was then able to funnel it, in, funnel it into Barry Lyndon. And you think, well, this is all well and good, but we could have had something so much better. Yeah, and um, Spielberg was talking about doing it as a miniseries, wasn't it? I don't, I don't know if he's still doing that. Yeah, Spielberg talks about a lot of things. He's a busy mm. man, uh, but yeah. I, I would like to see that come to fruition just because, I mean, it won't be Kubrick's version, but if they could get something even close to it, it would still be interesting, from at least from a kind of academic standpoint. Mm. Yeah, in terms of like visionary kind of geniuses... Uh... Uh, Orson Welles had a few unmade projects. He had a bit of uh, uh, what I've seen termed as completion anxiety. Um, he uh, had Heart of Darkness on the slab for a while, and that he couldn't do it. Um, obviously, that kind of drove Francis Ford Coppola mad much later. Um, and also Don Quixote, those two projects uh, lend themselves quite aptly to being unfinished and kind of uh, unattainable. Yeah, certainly in the case of, of Don Quixote, uh, which is... Uh, maddened several great directors including Terry Gilliam who's tried to make it like four times now <laughs> and yeah. each time he seems to get further and further away mm. uh, the, for the first time he actually got some footage shot and each subsequent one they seem to get uh, the money seems to get pulled earlier and earlier uh, which is a terrible shame uh, how, how do you feel about the man who killed Don Quixote because that's one of those ones where I kind of want to see it made just because it may, it may just kind of. It's, I just want Terry Gilliam to get a win, which mm. he kind of hasn't had for a while. But at the same time, the version that you see in uh, Lost in La Mancha, where it's most mostly physical effects, wouldn't get made now. It'd all be digital, and the digital stuff in Gilliam's films tends to not be that good. Mm. Well, the way I feel about it is. I don't think he can turn in a film that's as fascinating as the film about him failing to make the film he's trying to make. Mm. Lost in La Mancha is, you know, a fascinating look at the filmmaking process, uh, especially for anyone if you've worked on a film uh, of any level, even just a short film with your friends, you kind of understand there are kind of like small irritations and frustrations that kind of hold things up. And then this film just kind of magnifies those by like a billion and then just takes them to kind of absurd lengths um, to see uh, almost as if someone is designing uh, uh, this kind of like series of mishaps um, to upset a, uh, a, a film director who's desperately trying to get his his vision realised, um, and it's hugely entertaining uh, watching the whole thing fall apart. But at the same time, like you're saying, you want Terry Gilliam to kind of uh, uh, have a hit because when he does hit, he's generally quite good. Yeah, and that's the one where you kind of think he's invested so much of his time in it that you just you just think there is something here that clearly means a huge amount to him in a way that, you know, I don't think the Brothers Grimm did. <laughs> you just kind of think that it'd be so lovely if he could get this personal vision made, but he's cycled through so many different actors and so many different iterations of it now. You just wonder whether or not whatever showed up on screen would actually have that personal personal stamp to it, or if he just kind of was doing it to do it and mm. to have it be over with. How far did uh, Orson Welles get with his Don Quixote film? He definitely shot parts of it. It was the same as a lot of his films after he left Hollywood where he would film bits and pieces of it over the years. And I think that Don Quixote was the one that he spent the longest working on. You know, just whenever the money came together, he would shoot bits and pieces of it. And I think 
versions of it exist there where they assemble the raw footage and it's something like an hour long or something but mm. he he didn't get close to finishing it by the end of his life but he did at least shoot parts of it and if you search for it online there are kind of uh, snatches of it here and there mm. yeah yeah that's uh, one one for the ages um kind of a more recent uh, example of a film that kind of uh probably just like took too long to kind of get off anywhere and then by the time it kind of got near being shot it, it never did uh is uh, Tim Burton's Superman Lives which uh, was famously scripted by uh, one of our favorite people Kevin Smith um cast Nick Cage in the uh, in the lead role the titular role um but then kind of the studio didn't like Kevin Smith's script rewrote it and then the whole thing just got bogged down in rewrites and I think when they talk about um, Superman Returns being a kind of financial failure, a lot of the costs are associated with Superman Lives, I believe. Yeah, because that one would have come out in sort of like 70, uh, 96 or something like that, uh, because it was due to come out uh, timed with like one of the anniversaries of Superman's first appearance. And they obviously couldn't make the the deadline, so it ended up being scrapped. But they did spend literally years and millions and millions of dollars just trying to get it made, and you know, in all the pre-production and all the various stages. So it's easy to see why uh, something like Superman Returns, where you, you're just trying to recoup all of that investment somehow, <laughs> it would just inflate the budget because the film's been in production for at least sort of ten, fifteen years in one stage or another. Mm. Um, I always kind of remember the story about um, Kevin Smith writing it um, uh, he does like to kind of talk about his, his own work but he was kind of saying once that one of the executives said uh, I don't really care what you do um, but I want to see uh, the Superman fight a giant spider I've always wanted to see him fight a giant spider and Kevin Smith was like uh, okay and then just kind of worked a giant spider into it somewhere and the film didn't get made and then the same executive was behind Wild Wild West where all of a sudden there's a big giant mechanical spider in it. And it was just like, I always just like the idea that there are these hugely powerful, rich moguls in Hollywood who are just trying to get giant spiders into movies. <laughs> yeah, I think that's also, again, it kind of gets to a, a similar thing with uh, Jodorowsky's Dune where there are films where ideas and it kind of permeate, permeate outwards either because someone involved had a particular idea that they really wanted to see get made in some form or another or because the people involved are kind of inspired to do other things and and kind of one of the great examples of that for me is um the film Night Skies which was a film that Steven Spielberg was developing in the late 70s as a kind of sequel to uh to Close Encounters which was going mm. to be a, a horror film about a family being uh tormented by a group of hostile aliens and if you it was written by John Sayles who was you know a favorite of ours and elements of that the, the film obviously never got made but elements of it worked ended up being used for ET because one of the aliens was a kind of a friendly alien uh poltergeist because you have that whole idea of a family being menaced by kind of external forces and uh, gremlins because again the idea was that there were this group of kind of evil aliens but the one good one and uh, that always has struck me as kind of one of the more influential films that never got made just because those elements ended up 
forming parts of three uh, kind of epo- epochal films from that period. Mm. It must be kind of like uh, very easy for you know directors who are around a long time to you know who have uh, you know careers where they can kind of pick and choose what they do, like Spielberg, who can pull ideas from previous things that never get done and kind of then just force them into into stuff they're doing. Yeah, I think he he did that with. You would often hear him talk about that with various films, like the I think the minecart chase in Temple of Doom was something they wanted to do in the first uh, Indiana Jones film, and the submarine bit in Raiders was meant to be in something else that never he never managed to work it in. I think there there were clearly ideas for these people with really really strong visions where they just think this has got to work somewhere. I just haven't quite found the right place for it. Mm. Yeah, this, this is why there is uh, going to be a giant spider in Clerks 3. <laughs> um, it's going to have to happen. It's going to have to happen. Um, you also get, uh, you know, um, projects that are just too darn expensive or, or um, in this case, um, I'm going to talk about Paul Verhoeven's uh, Crusade, which was a, a very 90s uh, project which had Arnold Schwarzenegger playing a crusader in the Middle Ages. Um, possibly off the kind of the back of the, uh, uh, I don't know, the fact that Terminator Two was a big success and also Robin and Prince of Thieves was around the same time, um, and yeah, he was going to play Crusader, but apparently it was a the version that was kind of written. You can kind of find it online. Uh, was very kind of like scathing when it talked about kind of uh, anti-Arabic attitudes and quite scathing of Christianity. Um, and it was in place for Calco, the uh, the kind of mini studio that made Terminator Two, um, um, and they were going to make it, but they put put a lot of money behind another film called Cutthroat Island, oh, which um, bankrupted them. And uh, as a result, I mean, there were probably other reasons why the Crusade never got made. Um, but yeah, uh, that probably has something to do with it. But I mean, that's something that you know. If that was that film was made now, with that would be kind of two hundred and fifty, three hundred million dollars to do something on that scale, um, and those are the kind of things that can only happen if the stars align in very kind of convenient manner, like having the biggest star in the world, having a dependable director, and an idea that's gonna that's gonna kind of catch fire. And even then, sometimes that just doesn't happen. You know, one of the more famous ones of recent years of a film that had everything going for it, and then. The money just wasn't there. It was Guillermo del Toro's in At the Mountains of Madness, mm-hmm. where he had Tom Cruise signed up to be a star in it. He it was going to be kind of an R-rated horror film. He had kind of a track record as a as a director. Maybe not a director with the best kind of commercial success, but certainly someone who could produce works that you know people were very passionate about. And then they just every one thought, you know, this is going to happen, and then you know the the money just fizzled away because he said yeah it's going to be r-rated and 3d and obviously there's going to be giant penguins and things in there um because it's a weird hp lovecraft novella and yeah it just it just kind of all fizzled away Mm. and i wonder whether like someone like del toro will always keep those ideas those passion projects kind of in the back pocket and kind of you know perhaps bring them out when they are in a position to kind of you know be more bankable or whatever. I always think of um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Megalopolis, mm. which is a film that he wanted to make in the in the seventies. Then he kind of decided, oh, the technology wasn't up to it. Then it was like he didn't have any money. Then it was, oh shit, I've gone mad in Vietnam. 
Uh, and then it was like, you know, uh, no one will touch it because it's too weird. Then people were interested again. Then 9-11 happened and he kind of didn't want to make a film about this utopian New York uh, with that in the background. And then I think the point he keeps getting asked about it kind of periodically. And he's like, well, it's still there. But, you know, whether I'll make it is, is, is quite another thing. And that's, you know, it's weird to think that someone like Francis Paul Coppola has got these ideas that he'll always want to make and will just kind of perhaps keep coming back to. And, and you know, will they ever one day make them? Yeah, that was, it was interesting reading up about that one today just because when I was uh, researching it, I think they said that he made Dracula, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, Jack, Jack and the Rainmaker all in a row to kind of have enough commercial clout to get the film made. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it didn't get made because, like you say, it was a film about New York and he couldn't really see how you could make a film about New York in the wake of 9-11. And you kind of think, well, so we got three terrible to mediocre films <laughs> and then we got nothing to show for it. It's just so absolutely galling. And, you know, I think that's, an, that's also a case where a director clearly had invested so much time and effort into it that the fact that it just looks like it's not going to come together after years and years of inactivity, uh, you know, must be really heartbreaking. I think of, we talked about... Uh, Akira Kurosawa a few weeks ago and one of the things I that always kind of strikes me as being kind of one of the really heartbreaking things about his work is that after he you know he had this kind of five-year period where he tried to get films made in Hollywood and he invested years and years of time and effort into making these films he tried to make uh, Runaway Train which ended up being made in the 80s with I believe John Voight and Eric Roberts and he also tried to make Torah 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 and was fired from it and part of the tragedy there is not only that we didn't get two more Akira Kurosawa films but you know there was literally years wasted where, he didn't get, where we ended up not getting any films at all from him mm. yeah, and that's yeah. kind of the worst thing with the Coppola thing is we got three terrible films when if he had, if he had at least got Megalopolis made we would have something to show for it mm. Um, and Megalopolis dragged on a long time. Um, other kind of projects have, have dragged on kind of even longer um, across many other directors and, and kind of uh, setups. The one that springs to mind is uh, the kind of endless saga of them trying to make an adaptation of Confederacy of Dunces, mm. um, which was, I mean, going back to the kind of early 80s, um, Harold Ramis was attached uh, to do it with John Belushi and Richard Pryor and then Soderbergh was going to do it in the 90s and then he handed it off to David Gordon Green who had uh, a great cast including Will Ferrell and Most Deaf um, and then uh, now I think it's the, the project currently sits in the uh, the lap of uh, James Bobin who did The Muppets and uh, Flight of the Concords which is, you know, that's a long time for a, for a film to be kind of in development yeah, and it's also one where, uh, because the nature of the, the main character of uh, a confederacy of dunces is kind of quite a fat guy, uh, mm. it's, it, a lot of the actors who have been kind of attached to it have got kind of very overly large men. And if you look at the list of people, it's like Belushi, Chris Farley, John Candy, and you kind of start <laughs> to wonder, you know, like Zach Galifianakis has been attached to it or, or rumoured for it in recent years, and you kind of wonder if he's a little uh, reluctant to to be associated with it because it definitely seems to be 
uh, at best a uh, a poisoned chalice for mm. kind of over oversized comedians. That probably explains why he's lost so much weight recently. <laughs> it's like you can't cast me now. I can live another fifty years. Yeah, um, I think uh, another reason why uh, films don't get made or, or kind of stay unmade um, is that they are, you know, perhaps too crazy to mm-hmm. be even considered. And there's two I'm going to talk about here. Um, the first is um, uh, the sequel to Gladiator, which yes. uh, I know a lot of you will say they can't make a sequel to Gladiator because uh, you know Russell Crowe's character died, and it was quite specific. Um, but they were going to make a version like based around Russell Crowe's son, who perhaps went on to be a gladiator. That would be uh, well Hollywood that. But then Russell Crowe was like, actually, I still want to be involved. So, but I want a bit of creative control. And the studio were like, yeah, sure, why not? And he's like, well, I tell you what, I've got my mate in Australia. He'll write it. His name's Nick Cave, and Nick Cave had a little bit of previous. He'd written some film scripts before. He knows his onions. So the studio weirdly said yes. Nick Cave turned in a script in which. Russell Crowe's character Maximus is still in it, but he is constantly being reincarnated through history and fighting in every war from kind of Roman times to Vietnam. But at the start, he murders Jesus. And the original title for the script was Christ Killer, which, again, might have been a little bit on the nose. But And the studio were like, what? What have you done? Uh, we're not going to make this. Why would we ever make this? And I get the impression that Nick Cave knew that they were not going to make it. <laughs> Do you get the idea? Yeah, uh, yeah. I've seen very long, detailed synopses of everything that happened in the film, and it included like him being an immortal who is reincarnated in every major conflict, including going into the future and being the admiral of a spaceship. And it's it's amazing to read because it's it's so ridiculous and insane. But like Nick Cave is not. He's not someone who's completely unaware of how the world works. I think he mm. knows that you have to have an idea that's filmable and that you could sell. <laughs> um, and I think that unless, uh, you know, the only way that you would get someone who making a, a script like that who had genuinely no, who, who would be surprised that they would not make it would be someone who has, like, been, lived in a cave for their whole life and then is told to write a story. Mm. Like he's someone who knows films, he knows how they're made, so I think he probably did it just for the for the fun of it and because his mate asked him to. Yeah, yeah. I can't I I would have loved to have seen like the executive reading that for the first time and kind of meeting with him and say, Um, it's not quite what we kind of had in mind, <laughs> but I mean does he have to kill Jesus in, in that draft? I mean, could we maybe mix it up a little bit? But yeah, um, the second one I want to talk about in, in scripts that are uh, uh, perhaps too crazy is, uh, we mentioned John Sayles earlier. He is, uh, you know, a, a favourite of ours and one of my all-time favourite directors, an Oscar-nominated uh, screenwriter. Um, he uh, was attached to write um, a draft of, of Jurassic Park 4. Um, so kind of after after the Joe Johnston Jurassic Park 3, um, they handed the keys to, to Mr. Sales, and he wrote a, a script, and you can find it online. It's it's available, and I, I heartily recommend you do read it um, all the way to the end, um, because in John Sales' uh, uh, Jurassic Park 4, um, John Hammond, who inexplicably is dead anyway, and you know by this point, uh, pays a, a soldier of fortune to go back to the first island 
to retrieve some genetic material so we can kind of have another go at making you know the Jurassic Park kind of project uh, so this guy does, he goes back to the island, but kind of, obviously there's lots of dinosaurs there and all kinds of shit, and he kind of, uh, kind of does himself a mischief and, and can't get off the island, but he's rescued by some strangers, and they take him to a castle in the Swiss Alps, and, uh, led by a kind of crazy scientist called Baron von Drax, uh, who's been working on his own project, uh, he is offered a chance to work on a project in which dinosaurs have been turned into armoured soldiers, uh, that are kind of like super intelligent and are given serotonin like kind of heroin addicts to uh, do what their masters command. Um, and he does, and he joins them in a kind of daring raid uh, in a French villa to rescue a businessman's daughter. Um, and that's, uh, that's, it gets much weirder and stranger because the dinosaurs can kind of talk to each other and the leader is a raptor called Spartacus. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm not making that up. That, that that is actually a thing. That that one is that is nuts, and it's. Uh, I think that's one of the cases where, again, we. I think the the the, the thing that kind of connects those two is they're both both uh, Gladiator Two and Jurassic Park Four. Is they both seem to come from a place where people are like, we've got nowhere else to go based <laughs> on the previous films. You know, in Gladiator, Maximus is dead, um, and we've pretty much exhausted that storyline. But we still have to have Russell Crowe involved somehow because he's the character people know. In the case of Jurassic Park, you know they'd pretty much done a lot of the material that you could actually do with Jurassic Park, so they started to get a little more outside the box. And I think that that version of Jurassic Park for I would love to have seen it made just for the internet's reaction. To, mm. to all of the crazy ideas being thrown in it because if people are re- reacting kind of uh, snarkily to the stuff that we're seeing for Jurassic World where, you know, they've made a slightly smarter dinosaur, ones that kind of run around toting guns would have been um, quite it would have been quite something to see the reaction. Yeah, and it's, it's weird that, like, you, you talk about um, this script coming out of a place where a franchise had nowhere else to go look at the film that they're making, they've made now, Jurassic World, which, granted, we haven't seen, but from the trailer and the description of the plot and everything, it's just they've remade Jurassic Park. Mm. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, they've not quite... uh, And they've set it in a world in which people think, this was a complete disaster, let's try it exactly the same way. (laughs) And hire the same people, because BD Wong is in in Jurassic World, and he turns up in the second trailer, and I was like, hang on... You're going to hire this guy, who was who was a principal architect of of what can only be described as a uh, a clusterfuck uh, <laughs> on Isla Nublar the first time. You know how's this guy getting a job? Who read his CV? Yes, yeah, it's, it's got to be have been a something of a public relations disaster when they announced that they were giving him the job to help design the new one. Yeah, kind of like what's the justification? Well, he knows what went wrong the first time. <laughs> and he's the only, he's one of the only survivors. <laughs> yeah, he, he's as better placed as anyone to tell us what went wrong. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, fucked up. Uh, like just on a side point, like um, that. Like last week we talked about hype and stuff, and I think when we were recording the the Jurassic World trailer was about to go live the next day. Um, it, um, I kind of, as we said in the episode last week, kind of resent 
being kind of too influenced by trailers and, and, and kind of and putting too much kind of value on them. But it really doesn't make me want to go and see that film. Hmm. Yeah, it definitely looks a little bland. You know, it doesn't really have a huge amount of a huge amount of flavour to it. And it, it also there's just I, something about the effects doesn't look right to me. Like mm. considering the first one really pushed the boundaries of special effects, this one just kind of looked a little ordinary. And you know, the most kind of compelling and special thing about it is Chris Pratt, really. Mm. And, and I have to say that as much as I love Chris Pratt, it almost feels like he knows that the film's not very good in the mm. trailers. Like there's, there's just a little bit of spark missing. Yeah, he doesn't seem to be having a huge amount of fun, and I don't know if they've just kind of written a very bland character but he doesn't even have the uh he doesn't even have the the kind of sense of humor that you see in is it Muldrake the guy in the first one the uh, Muldoon girls. Muldoon yeah Muldoon yeah at least he kind of has a sense of fun about it being kind of a dinosaur hunter whereas everything we've seen of Chris Pratt just makes him look kind of very very gloomy mm. which he kind of awesome he kinda, suits him yeah he kind of looks like they've got most of the characters from Jurassic Park and kind of merge all the Jurassic Park films and merge them into one character and put them in a leather waistcoat. <laughs> it just seems a bit, yeah, yeah, kind of like, yeah, not particularly uh, interesting or, or unique. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's, that's that's kind of unmade films from the kind of the sublime, kind of uh, heartbreaking missed opportunities to the absolutely fucking mad as a box of kind of talking armed armored dinosaurs yeah um, i'm just looking at other other examples on my list i was quite interested how many times uh soderbergh's names came up in this one we mentioned him a few times he seems to have been someone who has been attached to more or less everything at one stage or another i think Mm. what's interesting is like there's so many films he was attached to you know there's obviously the 3d musical version of cleopatra with music by uh cleopatra yeah no, I mean, like, was was the was the music provided by the band Cleopatra? Uh, no, they kind of came at him, but he said, <laughs> but he said no, uh, no. The music was going to be by Fountains of Wayne, I believe, uh, oh, wow. and uh, the details of this film um, all were kind of came out in those Sony emails because that was the film that uh, Angelina Jolie was really set on making that got her called uh, kind of an entitled bitch or whatever it was that she was called by Amy Pascal. Um, wow. And that, that was that's a film that every detail of it just sounds really crazy. It's like a three D musical version of Cleopatra. It just doesn't sound like a film that would make any money, <laughs> but is clearly kind of a passion project. But the one that I was well, I was quite interested in was Moneyball, which did get made and is an example of a film that ended up being made and being really good, but was kind of on the verge of being made. I think it actually came to like the day that filming was due to start, and then. Soderbergh pulled out and the whole thing fell apart and mm. his version of the film just sounds fascinating because instead of being a straightforward retelling he was going to do like a mixture of documentary and recreations and it was going to be shot on like 12 different formats and all these sort of things and I always find I, I you know I always think of in uh in Sandman the Neil Gaiman comic there is a, a part where they show that there's a library in in kind of uh, Dreams Kingdom where all the books that were thought of but never written or all the books that never completed exist. And I always kind of think it'd be great if there's a place like that where all the kind of different versions of films that nearly got made of different actors exist. And then, you know, it'd just be fascinating to see, like, 
oh that version of the Matrix that was going to star Will Smith, or uh, you know uh, uh, Norman Jewison's version of Malcolm X. Although I don't think anyone really wants to watch that, considering we got a great one in the end. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, uh, there is other universes off there somewhere where uh, Crispin Glover. Uh, no, sorry, yeah, Crispin. No, sorry, Eric Stoltz is still in Back to the Future. Mm, or uh, where Vincent Ward's Alien 3 managed to make it past uh, storyboarding and we got mm. to see what it looked like with monks on a wooden planet being torn apart by an alien. Yeah, I mean, instead we just got a film that is probably the most meh film ever made. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the, the more visually ugly of the Alien series. Mm, yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's unmade films. Um, there are scripts online for a lot of these uh, films. I would highly recommend reading the, uh, the the Nick Cave one. If it hasn't been taken down, there's definitely kind of very long, detailed breakdowns of it. Uh, and, and the Jurassic Park 4 one. Um, check it out. Um, we'll be back uh, next week. Um, and until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.